0: Welcome, everyone, to Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and after last week's episode, I thought we'd hear about another mass shooting. So let's talk about the Columbine High School shooting. Everyone, sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. high school massacre was a school shooting and attempted bombing that occurred on April 20, 1999, at Columbine High School in Columbine, Colorado. The perpetrators, 12th-grade students Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, murdered 12 students and one teacher. 10 of the 12 students killed were in the school library, where Harris and Klebold subsequently committed suicide. 21 additional people were injured by gunshots and gunfire was also exchanged with the police. Another three people were injured while trying to escape. The Columbine Massacre was the deadliest mass shooting at a K-12 school in the United States history until it was surpassed by the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in December of 2012 and later the Robb Elementary School shooting in May 2022 and the deadliest mass shooting at a high school in U.S. history until the Parkland High School shooting in February of 2018. Columbine still remains both the deadliest mass shooting and the deadliest school shooting to occur in the state of Colorado. Harrison Klebold, who planned for at least a year and hoped to have a large number in victims, intended for the attack to primarily be a bombing and only secondarily shooting. But when several homemade bombs they planted in the school failed to detonate, the pair launched a shooting attack. Their motive remains inconclusive. The police were slow to enter the school and were heavily criticized for not intervening during the shooting. The incident resulted in the introduction of the immediate action rapid deployment tactic, which is used in active shooter situations and an increased emphasis on school security with zero tolerance policies. Debates and moral panic were sparked over American gun culture and gun control laws, high school cliques, subcultures, outcasts, and school bullying, as well as teenage use of pharmaceutical antidepressants, the internet, and violence in video games and movies. Many makeshift memorials were created after the massacre, including ones employing victims Rachel Scott's car and John Tomlin's truck. 15 crosses for the victims and the shooters were erected on top of a hill in Clement Park. The crosses for Harris and Klebold were later removed following a controversy. Planning for a permanent memorial began in June 1999, and the resulting Columbine Memorial opened to the public in September of 2007. The shooting has inspired dozens of copycat killings dubbed the Columbine Effect, including many deadlier shootings across the world. The word Columbine has become a byword for school shootings. Eric Harris was born on April 9, 1981 in Wichita, Kansas. His parents were both born and raised in Colorado. His mother, Catherine Ann Poole, was a homemaker, and his father, Wayne Harris, was working in the United States Air Force as a transport pilot. In 1983, the family moved to Dayton, Ohio, when Harris was two years old. Six years later, the family relocated to Escada, Michigan. Michigan pastor William Stone Lived across the street from the Harris family while they were located in Oskata. Stone recalled them as, quote, great neighbors, and often saw Wayne very engaged with his sons. The Harris family then moved to Plattsburgh, New York, in 1991. During his time at Stafford Middle School, Harris played Little League Baseball, regularly went to birthday parties, and was, quote, part of the crowd. Kyle Ross, a former classmate of Harris, said, He was just a typical kid. The Harris family finally settled back in Littleton, Colorado the next year when Wayne retired from the military. On a 1997 English class assignment, Harris wrote about how difficult the move was from New York to Colorado. Quote, it was the hardest moving from Plattsburgh. I have the most memories from there, Harris continued. When I left my friends, I felt alone, lost, and even agitated that I'd spent so much time with them and now I have to go because of something that I can't stop. Harris, in his basement tape, blamed his father for moving the family around, forcing Harris to start out at the bottom of the ladder. Harris had a chest deformity known as pectus excavatum, in which the breastbone sinks into the chest. This made him reluctant to take his shirt off in gym class, as other students would ridicule him. Harris had two cosmetic surgeries at the age of 12 and 13 to repair the deformity. The sunken chest was still mildly observable during his autopsy. The Harris family lived in rented accommodations for the first three years that they lived in the Littleton area. While Harris was in seventh grade, he met Klebold. In 1996, the Harris family purchased and settled at a house south of Columbine High School. Eric's older brother, Kevin, attended college at the University of Colorado. His father took a job with the Flight Safety Services Corporation, and his mother became a caretaker. Eric entered Columbine High School in 1995 as a freshman. Columbine had just gone through a major renovation and expansion. From all his accounts, he had many friends and was left forward and midfield on the Columbine soccer team for his freshman and sophomore year. According to one of his teammates, Josh Swanson, he said Eric was a solid soccer player who enjoyed the sport a lot. During his freshman year, Eric met Tiffany Tyfer. They had German class together. Tiffany later recounted that Eric quickly wooed her. He asked her to homecoming and she accepted. After the event, it appeared that Tiffany was no longer interested in seeing Eric anymore, for reasons she never disclosed. When Tiffany refused to socialize with Eric again, Eric staged a fake suicide, sprawling on the ground with fake blood splashed all over him. When Tiffany saw him on the ground, she began to scream for help, at which point Eric and his friends began laughing prompting Tiffany to storm off, shouting at Eric to get psychological help. Dylan Klebold was born on September 11, 1981, in Lakewood, Colorado, to Thomas and Sue Klebold. On the day after the shooting, Dylan's mother remembered that shortly after his birth, she described what felt like a shadow had been cast over her, warning her that this child would bring her great sorrow. I think I still make of it what I did at the time. It was a passing feeling that went over very quickly, like a shadow. Sue said in an interview with Colorado Public Radio, Dylan was soon diagnosed with pyloric stenosis, a condition in which the opening between the stomach and small intestine thickens, causing severe vomiting during the first few months of life. Dylan's parents had met when they were both studying at Ohio State University after they both graduated. They married in 1971 with their first child, Byron, being born in 1978. Thomas had initially worked as a sculptor, but then moved over to engineering to be more financially stable. Sue had worked in assistant services with disabled children. Furthermore, Dylan's parents were pacifists and attended a Lutheran church with their children. Both Dylan and his older brother attended confirmation classes in accordance with the Lutheran tradition. As had been the case with his older brother, Dylan was named after renowned poet Dylan Thomas. Dylan attended Normandy Elementary School for first and second grade and then transferred to Governor's Ranch Elementary School where he was a part of the Challenging High Intellectual Potential Students Program for Gifted Children. According to reports, Dylan was exceptionally bright as a young child, although he appeared somewhat sheltered in elementary school. When he transitioned to Ken Carroll Middle School, he found it difficult. Fellow classmates recalled him being painfully shy and quiet, often to an uncomfortable degree. Dylan's parents were unconcerned with the fact that he found the changing of schools uneasy, as they assumed it was just regular behavior among young adolescents. At the family home, the Klebolds also observed some rituals in keeping with Dylan's maternal great-grandfather's Jewish heritage. During his early school years, Dylan played baseball, soccer, and t-ball. He was in the Cub Scouts with friend Brooks Brown whom he was friends with since the first grade. Brown lived near the house Harris's parents had bought when they finally settled in Littleton and rode the same bus as Eric. Shortly after Dylan had met Eric and the pair quickly became best friends. Later, Eric introduced Dylan to his friend Nathan Dykman who also attended their middle school and they all became a tight-knit group of friends. Both Eric And Dylan worked together as cooks at Blackjack Pizza, a mile south from Columbine High School. Eric was eventually promoted to a shift leader. He and his group of friends were interested in computers and were enrolled in a bowling class. Some described Eric as charismatic and others described him as nice and likable. Eric also often bragged about his ability to deceive others, once stating in a tape, that he could make anyone believe anything. By his junior year, Eric was also known to be quick to anger and threaten people with bombs. Classmates also related that Eric was fascinated by war and wrote out violent fantasies about killing people that he did not like. Dylan was described by his peers and adults as painfully shy. He often was fidgety whenever someone new talked to him rarely opening up to people. He also was exceptionally nervous in front of the opposite sex, sometimes avoiding a confrontation with girls altogether. In the last year of his life, many noted a change in Dylan's behavior. Unlike before, he became short-tempered, often prone to sudden outbursts of anger. Much of the information on Eric and Dylan's friendship is unknown on their interactions and conversations aside from the basement tapes of which only transcripts have been released aside from a short audio clip recorded by the victim's father a victim's father the pair claimed that they were going to make copies of the tapes to send to news stations but never did so Eric and Dylan met at Ken Carroll Middle School during their 7th grade year over time they became increasingly close hanging out by often going out bowling, carpooling, and playing video, the video game DOOM over a private server connected to their personal computers. By their junior year of high school, the boys were described as inseparable. Chad Laughlin, a close friend of Eric and Dylan, said that they always sat alone together at lunch and often kept to themselves. A rumor eventually started that Eric and Dylan were gay and romantically involved, due to the time the pair spent together. It's unknown if they were aware of this rumor. Judy Brown believed Eric was more emotionally dependent on Dylan, who was more liked by the broader student population. In his journals, however, Dylan wrote that he felt that he was not accepted or loved by anyone. Due to these feelings, Dylan possibly sought validation from Eric Dylan's mother believed Eric's rage intermingled with Dylan's self-destructive personality and that caused the boys to feed off of each other and enter in what eventually became a very unhealthy friendship at Columbine High School Eric and Dylan were active in school play productions, they operated video productions and became computer assistants, maintaining the school's computer server According to early accounts of the shooting, they were very unpopular students and targets of bullying. While sources do support accounts of bullying specifically directed towards Eric and Dylan, accounts of them being outcasts have been reported to be false, since both of them had a close-knit group of friends. Eric and Dylan were initially reported to be members of a clique that was called the Trenchcoat Mafia despite later confirmation that the pair had no connection to the group and furthermore did not appear in the group's photo in Columbine High's 1998 yearbook. Eric's father erroneously stated that his son was, quote, a member of what they call the Trenchcoat Mafia in a 911 call that he made on the day of the shooting. Dylan attended the high school prom three days before the shootings with a classmate named Robin Anderson. Eric and Dylan linked their personal computers on a network and played video games over the internet. Eric created a set of levels for the game Doom, which later became known as the Harris Levels. The levels were downloadable over the internet through Doomwads. Eric had a web presence under the handle Reb, which was short for Rebel, a nod to the nickname of Columbine High's sports team and other online aliases, including Rebel, Rebel Maker, RebDoomer, and RebDomain. Dylan went by the names Vodka and Vodka, spelled both spelled the same. <laughs> After the alcoholic beverage, Eric had various websites that hosted Doom and Quake files, as well as team information for those with whom he gamed online. The sites openly espoused hatred for people in their neighborhood, and the world in general. When the pair began experim- experimenting with pipe bombs, they posted the results of the explosions on their websites. The website was shut down by America Online after the shootings and was preserved for the FBI. On the night of January thirtieth, 1998, Eric and Dylan broke into a locked van to steal computers and other electronic equipment. A short while after, a Jefferson County Sheriff's officer drove upon the two boys parked further down the road at another park entrance, and since the park area was closed by that time of night, the arresting deputy decided to further inspect them. The deputy announced his presence as one of the boys prepared to move the stolen goods into the trunk of the car. Eric, shortly after, admitted to theft after the deputy asked about where the equipment came from. They were later charged with mischief, breaking and entering, trespassing, and theft. They both left good impressions on juvenile officers, who offered to expunge their criminal records if they agreed to attend a diversionary program which included community service and psychiatric treatment. Eric was required to attend ager management classes where, again, he made a favorable impression. The boys' probation officer discharged them from the program a few months ahead of schedule for good behavior. Regarding Eric, it was remarked that he was, quote, a very bright individual who was likely to succeed in life, while Dylan was said to be intelligent but needs to understand that hard work is a part of fulfilling a dream. Several months later, on April 30th, Eric handed over the first version of a letter of apology that he wrote to the owner of the van, which he completed the next month. In the letter, he expressed regret about his actions. However, in one of his journal entries dated April 12th, he wrote, quote, Isn't America supposed to be the land of the free? How come if I'm free? I can't deprive some fucking dumb shit from his possessions if he leaves them sitting in the front seat of his fucking van in plain sight in the middle of fucking nowhere on a fry-fucking-day night. Natural selection. Fuckers should be shot. That's a pretty messed up thing to say. Shortly after the court hearing for the van break-in, Harris reverted his website back to just hosting user-created levels of doom. He began to write his thoughts down in a journal. Dylan had already been keeping a personal journal since March 1997. As early as November of that year, Dylan had mentioned going on a killing spree. Dylan used his journal to vent about his personal problems, as well as what he'd wear and use during the attack. In both of their journals, Eric and Dylan would later plot the attack. In both their... Soon after beginning his journal... Eric typed out one plan of attack, which included possibly escaping to a foreign country after the massacre, or hijacking an aircraft at Denver International Airport and crashing it into New York City. Eric also made entries in his journal on topics related to his sexuality, where he described his desire for sex with women, especially his desire of raping and torturing women in his bedroom. He also expressed interest in cannibalism, stating that he would like to dismember a woman with whom he could have animalistic sex and eat her flesh. Eric and Dylan's schoolwork also foreshadowed the massacre. They both displayed themes of violence in their creative writing projects. In December of '97, Harris wrote a paper on school shootings titled, Guns in School. And a poem from the perspective of a bullet. Dylan wrote a short story about a man killing students, which worried his teacher so much that she alerted his parents. Both had also actively researched war and murder. For one project, Eric wrote a paper on Nazi Germany, and Dylan wrote a paper on Charles Manson. In a psychology class, Eric wrote that he dreamed of going on a shooting spree with Dylan. Eric's journals described several experimental bomb detonations. Nearly a year before the massacre, Dylan wrote a message in Eric's 1998 yearbook. Quote, Killing enemies, blowing stuff up, killing cops. My wrath for January's incident will be godlike, not to mention our revenge in the commons. The commons was slang for the school's cafeteria. When an economics class had Eric make an ad for a business, he and Dylan made a video called Hitman for Hire on December 8, 1998, which was released in February 2004. It depicts them as part of the Trenchcoat Mafia, a clique in the school who wore black trench coats extorting money for protecting preps from the bullies. They were apparently not a part of the Trenchcoat Mafia, but were friends with some of its members. They wore black trench coats on the day of the massacre, and the video seemed a kind of dress rehearsal, showing them walking the halls of the school and shooting bullies outside with fake guns. Both also displayed themes of violence in their creative writing projects of a Doom-based story written by Eric on January 17, 1999. His teacher said, quote, Yours is a unique approach, and your writing works in a gruesome way good details and mood setting. Eric and Dylan were unable to legally purchase firearms due to their both being underage at the time. Dylan then enlisted Robin Anderson, an 18-year-old Columbine student and old friend of his, to make a straw purchase of two shotguns and a high-point carbine for the pair, in exchange for her cooperation with the investigation that followed the shootings, no charges were filed against Anderson. After illegally acquiring the weapons, Dillon sawed off his Savage 311D 12-gauge double barrel shotgun, shortening the overall length to approximately 23 inches. Meanwhile, Harris's Savage Springfield 12-gauge pump shotgun was sawed off to around 26 inches. The shooters also possessed a a Tech-9 semi-automatic handgun, which had a long history. The manufacturer of the Tech-9 first sold it to Miami-based Navigar Incorporated. It was then sold to Xander Sporting Goods in Baldwin, Illinois in 1994. The gun was later sold to a firearms dealer, Larry Russell, in Thornton, Colorado. In violation of federal law, Russell failed to keep records of the sale, yet he determined that the purchaser of the gun was 21 years of age or older. Two men, Mark Maines and Philip Duran, were convicted of supplying weapons to the two. The bombs used by the pair varied and were crudely made from carbon dioxide canisters, galvanized pipe, and metal propane bottles. The bombs were primed with matches placed at one end. Both had striker strips in their sleeves. When they rubbed against the bomb, the match had lit the fuse. The weekend before the shootings, Harrison Klebold had purchased propane tanks and other supplies from a hardware store for a few hundred dollars. Several residents of the area claimed to have heard glass breaking and buzzing sounds from the Harris family's garage, which later was concluded to indicate that they were constructing pipe bombs. More complex bombs, such as the ones that detonated on the corner of South Wadsworth Boulevard and Ken Carroll Avenue, had timers. The two largest bombs built were found in the school cafeteria and were made from small propane tanks. Only one of those bombs went off, only partially detonating. It was estimated that if any of the bombs placed in the cafeteria had detonated properly, the blast could have caused extensive structural damage to the school and would have resulted in hundreds of casualties. On Tuesday morning, April 20th, 1999, Eric and Dylan placed two duffel bags in the cafeteria. Each bag contained propane bombs set to detonate during the A lunch shift, which began at 11.15 a.m. No witness recalled seeing the duffel bags being added to the 400 or so backpacks that were already in the cafeteria. The security staff at Columbine High School did not observe the bags being placed in the cafeteria. A custodian, who was replacing the school security videotape at around 11.14 a.m., Shortly after the massacre, police speculated the bombs were placed during this tape change. They also investigated whether the bombs were placed during the after-prom party held the prior weekend. Some internet sleuths claim the bomb placement can be seen on the surveillance video at around 10.58 am. Eric and Dylan are seen in the tapes planting the bombs in casual school clothes separately. Jefferson County Sheriff's Deputy Neil Gardner was assigned to the high school as a full-time school resource officer. Gardner usually ate lunch with the students in the cafeteria, but on April 20th, he was eating lunch in his patrol car at the northwest corner of the campus, watching students in the Smoker's Pit in Clement Park, a meadow adjacent to the school. Two backpacks filled with pipe bombs aerosol canisters and small propane bombs were also placed in a field about three miles south of Columbine High School and two miles south of the fire station. The bombs were intended as a diversion to draw firefighters and emergency personnel away from the school. Only the pipe bombs and one of the aerosol canisters detonated causing a small fire which was quickly extinguished by the fire department. It went off after first having been moved. Bomb technicians immediately examined the bombs and relayed to police at the school the possibility of devices with motion activators. Eric and Dylan changed clothes and returned separately to Columbine. Eric parked his vehicle in the junior student parking lot, and Dylan parked in the adjoining senior student parking lot. The school cafeteria was their primary bomb target. The cafeteria had a long outside window wall, ground level doors, and was just north of the senior parking lot. The library was located above the cafeteria in the second story of the window tall, window wall. Each car contained bombs. As Eric pulled into the parking lot, he encountered classmate Brooks Brown with whom he had recently patched up a long-standing series of disputes. According to Brown, who was smoking a cigarette, he was surprised to see Eric, whom he earlier noted had been absent from a class test. Eric, a good student, was unlikely to miss school days with important academic obligation. Brown berated him for missing the test. Eric, acting unconcerned, replied, "'It doesn't matter anymore.' Harris went on, Brooks, I like you now. Get out of here. Go home. Brown, feeling uneasy and already prepared to skip his next class, walked away down South Pierce Street. Meanwhile, Eric and Dylan armed themselves using straps and webbing to conceal weapons beneath their trench coats. They lugged bags containing bombs and ammunition. Eric had concealed his shotgun in one of the bags. Beneath the trench coats, Eric wore a military bandolier and a white t-shirt with the inscription Natural Selection in black letters, a mantra that he had adopted. Dylan wore a black t-shirt with Wrath in red letters. The cafeteria bombs failed to detonate. Had these explosives detonated as intended, they would have killed or severely wounded the 488 students in the cafeteria and damaged the school structure, collapsing the library into the cafeteria and possibly killing more students and staff. At 11.19 a.m., 17-year-old Rachel Scott and her friend Richard Costaldo were having lunch and sitting on the grass next to the west entrance of the school. Dylan threw a pipe bomb toward the parking lot. The bomb only partially detonated, causing it to give off smoke. Castaldo thought it was no more than a crude senior prank. Likewise, several students during the incident first thought they were watching a prank. A witness reported hearing, go, go, before Dylan and Eric pulled their guns from beneath their trench coats and began shooting. The two allegedly returned to where Rachel, and Scott, Rachel Scott and Richard Castaldo lay on the ground injured. Scott was killed instantly when she was hit four times with rounds fired from Eric's carbine. One shot was to the left temple. Castaldo was shot eight times in the chest, arms, and abdomen by both Eric and Dylan. He fell unconscious to the ground and was left paralyzed below the chest. After firing twice, Dylan's Tech 9 jammed, and he was forced to temporarily cease firing to fix it, which he did by reloading a new magazine into his pistol. Meanwhile, Eric took off his trench coat and aimed his rifle down the west staircase in the direction of three students, Daniel, Robert, Sean Graves, and Lance Kirkland. The students presumed that they were paintball guns, and were about to walk up the staircase directly below the shooters. Eric fired 10 times, killing Daniel and injuring Graves and Kirkland. William David Sanders, a teacher and coach at this school, was in the cafeteria when he heard the gunfire and began warning students. Eric turned west and fired seven shots in the direction of five students sitting on the grassy hillside adjacent to the steps and opposite the west entrance of the school. Michael Johnson was hit in the face, leg, and arm, but ran and escaped. Mark Taylor was shot in the chest, arms, and leg and fell to the ground, where he faked death. The other three escaped uninjured. Dylan then walked down the steps toward the cafeteria. He first shot once at the body of Dan Rohrberg i am butchering this guy's name—I apologize—with his shotgun, and then came up to Lance Kirkland, who was already wounded and lying on the ground, weakly calling for help. Dylan said, "Sure, I'll help you." Then shot Kirkland in the jaw with his shotgun. Although near fatally injured. Kirkland would survive. Graves, paralyzed beneath the waist, had crawled into the doorway of the cafeteria's west entrance and collapsed. He rubbed his blood on his face and played dead. After shooting Kirkland, Dylan walked towards the cafeteria door. He then stepped over the injured Graves to enter the cafeteria. Graves remembered Dylan saying, "'Sorry, dude.' Dylan only briefly entered the cafeteria and did not shoot at the several people still inside. Officials speculated that Dylan went to check on the propane bombs. Eric was still on top of the stairs shooting and severely wounded and partially paralyzed 17 year old Anne Marie Hotchhalter as she tried to flee. Dylan came out of the cafeteria and went back up the stairs to join Eric. They each shot once at students standing close to a soccer field but did not hit anyone. They walked toward the west entrance, throwing pipe bombs in several directions, including onto the roof. Only a few of these pipe bombs detonated. Witnesses heard one of them say, This is what we always wanted to do. This is awesome. Meanwhile, our teacher, Patty Nielsen, was inside the school. She had noticed that the commotion and walked toward the west entrance was student Brian Anderson. Nielsen had intended to walk outside to tell the students to knock it off, thinking that they were either filming a video or pulling a student prank. As Anderson opened the first set of double doors, the gunman shot out the windows, injuring him with flying glass. Nielsen was hit in the shoulder with shrapnel. Anderson and Nielsen ran back down the hall into the library, and Nielsen alerted the students inside to the danger, telling them to get under the desks and keep silent. She dialed 911 and hid under the library's administrative counter. Anderson fell to the floor, bleeding from his injuries, then hid inside the magazine room adjacent to the library. At 11.22 a.m., a custodian called Deputy Neil Gardner, the assigned resource officer to Columbine, on the school radio, requesting assistance in the senior parking lot. The only paved route took him around the school to the east and south on Pierce Street, where at 11.23 a.m. he heard on his police radio that a female was down and assumed that she had been struck by a car. While exiting his patrol car in the senior lot at 11.24, he heard another call on the school radio. Neil, there's a shooter in the school. Eric, at the west entrance, immediately turned and fired 10 shots from his rifle at Gardner, who was 60 yards away. As Eric reloaded his carbine, Gardner leaned over the top of his car and fired four rounds back at Eric from his service pistol. Eric ducked back behind the building and Gardner momentarily believed that he had hit him. Eric then reemerged and fired at least four more rounds at him which missed and struck two parked cars, before retreating into the building. No one was hit during the exchange of gunfire. Gardner reported on his police radio, Shots in the building. I need someone in the south lot with me. By this point, Eric had shot 47 times and Dylan 5. The shooters then entered the school through the west entrance, moving along the main north hallway throwing pipe bombs and shooting at anyone that they encountered dylan shot stephanie munson in the ankle but she was able to walk out of the school the pair then shot out the windows to the east entrance of the school after proceeding through the hall several times and shooting toward and missing any students that they saw they went toward the west entrance and turned into the library hallway deputies Paul Smoker and Paul Magor motorcycle patrolmen for the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office were riding a traffic ticket north of the school when the female down call came in at 11:23. taking the shortest route they drove their motorcycles over the grass between the athletic field and headed toward the west entrance when they saw deputies Scott Taborski Rick Cyril and Kevin Walker following them in their patrol car they abandoned their motorcycles for the safety of the car. The six deputies had begun to rescue two wounded students near the ball fields when another gunfight broke out at 11.26, as Harris returned to the double doors and again began shooting at Deputy Gardner, who returned fire. From the hilltop, Deputy Smoker fired three rounds from his pistol at Eric, who again retreated into the building. As before, no one was hit. Inside the school cafeteria, Dave Sanders and two custodians, John Curtis and Jay Galatine, were initially told told students to get under the tables, then successfully evacuated students up the staircase leading to the second floor of the school. The stairs were located around the corner from the library hallway and the main south hallway. Sanders then tried to secure as much of the school as he could. Sanders and another student were at the end of the hallway, where he gestured for students in the library to stay before encountering Eric and Dylan, who were approaching from the corner of the north hallway. Sanders and the student turned and ran in the opposite direction. Eric and Dylan shot at them both, with Eric hitting Sanders twice in the back and neck, hitting his teeth on exit, but missing the student. The latter ran into a science classroom and warned everyone to hide. Dylan walked over toward Sanders who had collapsed and tossed a pipe bomb, then returned to Eric up the library hallway. Sanders struggled toward the science area, and teacher Rich Long took him into a classroom where 30 students were located. Due to his knowledge of first aid, student Aaron Hansie was brought to the classroom from another by teacher Kent Friesen, despite the unfolding commotion. With the assistance of fellow student Kevin Starkey and teacher Teresa Miller, Hansi administered first aid to Sanders for three hours, attempting to stem the blood loss using shirts from students in the room and showing him pictures from his wallet to keep him talking. Using a phone in the room, Miller and several students maintained contact with police outside the school. After the shooting unfolded, pipe bombs were tossed into the hallways and down into the cafeteria. Patty Nielsen in the library called 911, telling her story and urging students in the library to take cover beneath desks. According to transcripts, her call was received by a 911 operator at 11.25 a.m. At 11.29, Eric and Dylan entered the library. 52 students, two teachers, and two librarians were inside. Harris yelled at everyone to get up, loud enough to be heard on the 911 call. When no one complied, Eric yelled, fine, I'll start shooting anyway. Eric fired his shotgun twice at a desk. Student Evan Todd had been standing near a pillar when the shooters entered the library and had just taken cover behind a photocopier. Todd was hit by wood splinters in the eye and lower back, was, but was not seriously injured. He then hid behind the administrative counter. The gunman walked into the library towards the two rows of computers. Sitting at the north row was dis- d- disabled student Kyle Velasquez. Dylan fired his shotgun, fatally hitting him in the head and back. They put down their ammunition filled duffel bags at the south or lower row of computers and reloaded their weapons. They then walked between the computer rows toward the windows facing the outside staircase. Throughout the massacre in the library, they ordered everyone to get up and say how long they had been waiting for this and seemed to be enjoying themselves, shouting things like woo after shooting. While ordering the jocks to stand up, one of the two said, quote, anybody with a white hat or a sports emblem on it is dead. Wearing a white baseball cap at Columbine was a tradition among sports team members. Nobody stood up, and several students tried to hide their white hats. Windows were shot out in the direction of the recently arrived police. Officers returned fire and the gunmen retreated from the windows. No one was injured. Dylan removed his trench coat. He then fired a shotgun at a nearby table, injuring three students, Patrick Ireland, Daniel Stebleton, and Mackay Hall. Eric walked toward the lower row of computer desks with his shotgun and fired a single shot under the first desk while down on one knee. He hit 14-year-old Stephen Kernow with a mortal wound to the neck. He then moved to the adjacent computer desk, injuring 17-year-old Casey Rugsager with a shot which passed completely through her right shoulder, also grazing her neck and severing a major artery. When she started gasping in pain, Harris said, Quit your bitching. Eric then walked to a table south of the lower computer table with two students underneath, Cassie Bernal and Emily Wyant. Eric slapped the surface of the table twice as he knelt and said, peek-a-boo, before shooting Bernal once in the head with the shotgun, killing her. Eric, at this point, held the gun with one hand, and the weapon hit his face in recoil, injuring his nose. He then told Dylan that he had done so, and Dylan responded, why'd you do that? After fatally shooting Bernal, Eric turned toward the next table where Brie Pascal sat next to the table rather than under it. Eric's nose was bleeding. Witnesses later reported that he had blood around his mouth. Eric asked Pascal if she wanted to die, and she responded with a plea for her life. Eric laughed and responded, Everyone's gonna die. When Dylan said, Shoot her, Eric responded, No, No, we're going to blow up the school anyway. Dylan noticed Ireland trying to provide aid to Hall, who had suffered a wound to his knee. As Ireland tried to help Hall, his head rose above the table. Dylan shot him a second time, hitting him twice in the head and once in the foot. He was knocked unconscious, but survived. Dylan then walked toward another table where he discovered 18-year-old Isaiah Scholes, 16-year-old Matthew Ketcher, and 16-year-old Craig Scott, Rachel's younger brother, hiding underneath. Dylan called out to Eric that he found an N-word and tried to pull Scholes out from under the table. Eric left Pascal and joined him. According to witnesses, they taunted Scholes for a few seconds, making derogatory racial comments. The gunmen both fired under the table. Eric shot Scholes once in the chest, killing him, and Dylan shot and killed Ketcher. Though Scholes was not shot in the head, Dylan said, I didn't know black brains could fly like that. Meanwhile, Scott was uninjured, lying in the blood of his friends, feigning death. Harris then yelled, Who's ready to die next? He turned and threw a cricket at the table where Hall, Stebleton, and Ireland were located. It landed on Stebleton's thigh. Hall quickly noticed it and tossed it behind him, and it exploded in midair. Eric walked toward the bookcases between the west and center sections of tables in the library. He jumped on one and shook it, apparently attempting to topple it, and then shot at the books, which had fallen. Dylan walked to the east area of the library. Eric walked from the bookcase past the central area to meet Dylan. The latter shot at a display case next to the door, then turned and shot toward the closest table, hitting and injuring 17-year-old Mark Kintchin in the head and shoulder. He then turned toward the table to his left and fired, injuring 18-year-old Lisa Kreutz, Lauren Townsend, and Valine Schnuer with the same shotgun blast. Dillon then moved toward the same table and fired several shots with the Tech-9, killing Townsend. At this point, the seriously injured Valine Schnuer began screaming, oh my god, oh my god. In response, Dylan asked Newer if she believed in the existence of God. When she replied that she did, Dylan asked why and commented, God is gay. Dylan reloaded but walked away from the table. Eric approached another table where two girls were hiding. He bent down to look at them and dismissed them as quote, pathetic. Dylan, Eric moved Excuse me. Eric then moved to another table where he fired twice, injuring sixteen year old Nicole Nowlin and John Tomlin. Tomlin moved out from under the table. Dylan shot him repeatedly, killing him. Eric then walked back over to the other side of the table, where Townsend lay dead. Behind the table, a sixteen year old girl named Kelly Fleming had, like Bree Pascal, sat next to the table rather than beneath it due to a lack of space. Eric shot Fleming with his shotgun, hitting her in the back and killing her. He shot at the table behind Fleming, hitting Townsend, who was already dead. Crutes again and wounding 18-year-old Jenna Park. The shooters moved to the center of the library, where they reloaded their weapons at a table. Harris then pointed his rifle under a table, but the student he was aiming at moved out of the way. Eric turned his gun back on the student and told him to identify himself. It was John Savage, an acquaintance of Dylan's. He asked Dylan what they were doing, to which he shrugged and answered, ''Oh, just killing people.'' Savage asked if they were going to kill him. However, because of the background noise, Dylan said, ''What?'' Savage asked again whether they were going to kill him. Dylan said no and told him to run. Savage fled, escaping through the library's main entrance and through the cafeteria. After Savage left, Eric turned and fired his carbine at the table directly north of where he had been, hitting the ear and hand of 15-year-old Daniel Mauser. Mauser retaliated by either shoving a chair at Eric or grabbing at his leg. Eric fired again and hit Mauser in the center of the face at close range, killing him. Eric then moved south and fired three shots under another table, critically injuring two 17-year-olds, Jennifer Doyle and Austin Eubanks. Dylan then shot once, fatally wounding 17-year-old Corey DePuter at 11.35. There were no further victims they had killed 10 people in the library and wounded 12. Dylan was quoted as saying they might start knifing people, though they never did. They headed towards the library's main counter. Eric threw a Molotov cocktail toward the southwestern end of the library, but it failed to explode. They converged close to where Todd had moved after having been wounded. Dylan pulled the chair out from the desk, Then he pointed his tech-nine at Todd, who was wearing a white hat. Dylan asked if he was a jock, and when Todd said no, Dylan responded, Well, that's good. We don't like jocks. Dylan then demanded to see his face. Todd partly lifted his hat so his face would remain obscured. When Dylan asked Todd to give him one reason why he should not kill him, Todd said, I don't want trouble. Dylan responded back angrily, "'Trouble? You don't even know what fucking trouble is.' "'Todd tried to correct himself. That's not what I meant. "'I mean, I don't have a problem with you guys. I never will, and I never did.' "'Dylan then told Eric that he was going to let Todd live, "'but that Eric could kill him if he wanted. "'Eric appeared to pay no attention and stated that he and Dylan should head to the cafeteria.' Dylan fired into an open library staff break room, hitting a small television. While Eric was walking away, Dylan said, One more thing, then picked up the chair beside the library counter under which Patty Nielsen was hiding, and slammed the chair down on top of the computer terminal and library counter. Dylan joined Eric at the library entrance, and the two walked out of the library at 11.36. Cautiously, fearing the shooter's return, Ten injured and twenty-nine uninjured survivors began to evacuate the library through the north emergency exit door which led to the sidewalk adjacent to the west entrance. Casey Rugsager was evacuated from the library by Craig Scott. Had she not been evacuated at this point she would have likely bled to death from her injuries. Patrick Ireland unconscious and Lisa Cruz unable to move remained in the building Patty Nielsen crawled into the exterior break room into which Dylan had earlier fired shots and hid in a cupboard After leaving the library, Eric and Dylan entered the science area where they caused a fire in an empty storage closet It was extinguished by a teacher who had hidden in an adjacent room The gunmen then proceeded toward the south hallway where they shot into an empty science room At 11.44 a.m., they were captured on the school security cameras as they re-entered the cafeteria. The recording shows Eric crouching against the rail on the staircase and firing towards the propane bombs left in the cafeteria in an unsuccessful attempt to detonate them. As Dylan approached the propane bomb and examined it, Harris took a drink from one of the cups left behind. Dylan lit a Molotov cocktail and threw it at the propane bomb. About a minute later, the gallon of fuel attached to the bomb ignited, causing a fire that was extinguished by the fire sprinklers a few minutes later. They left the cafeteria at 11.46. After leaving the cafeteria, they returned to the main north and south hallways of the school and fired several shots into walls and ceilings as students and teachers hid in rooms. They walked through the south hallway into the main office before returning to the north hallway. At 11.56, they returned to the cafeteria and briefly entered the school kitchen. They returned up the staircase and into the south hallway at 12 p.m. They re-entered the library, which was empty of survivors, except for the unconscious Ireland and the injured crews. Once inside at 12.02, Police were shot at again through the library windows and returned fire. Nobody was injured in the exchange. By 12.05, all gunfire from the school had ceased. By 12.08 p.m., both gunmen had killed themselves. Eric sat down with his back to a bookshelf and fired his shotgun through the roof of his mouth. Dylan went down on his knees and shot himself in the left temple with his Tech-9. An article by the Rocky Mountain News stated that Patty Nielsen overheard them shout, "one, two, one, two, three, in unison just before a loud boom. Nielsen later said that she had never spoken with either of the writers of the article. In 2002, the National Enquirer published two post-mortem photos of Eric and Dylan in the library. Dylan's gun was underneath his body and so unseen in the photo, leading to the speculation that Eric had shot Dylan before killing himself. However, some of Dylan's blood was on Eric's leg. Also, just before shooting himself, Dylan lit a Molotov cocktail on a nearby table, underneath which Patrick Ireland was lying, which caused the tabletop to momentarily catch fire. Underneath the scorched film of material was a piece of Eric's brain matter, suggesting Eric had shot himself by this point. By 12 p.m., SWAT teams were stationed outside the school, and ambulances started taking the wounded to local hospitals. A call for additional ammunition for police officers in case of a shootout came at 12.20. Authorities reported pipe bombs by one, and two SWAT teams entered the school at 109, moving from classroom to classroom, discovering hidden students and faculty. They entered at the end of the school opposite the library, hampered by old maps and unaware a new wing had recently been added. They were also hampered by the sound of the fire alarms. There was controversy over whether Eric and Dylan should be memorialized. Some were opposed, saying that it glorified murderers, while others argued that Eric and Dylan were also victims. Atop a hill near Columbine High School, crosses were erected for Eric and Dylan, along with those for the people they killed. But the father of victim, Daniel Roburo, cut them down, saying that murderers should not be memorialized in the same place as victims. The FBI concluded that the killers had mental illnesses, that Eric was a clinical psychopath, and Dylan had depression. Dwayne Fuselier, the supervisor in charge of the Columbine investigation, would later remark, I believe Eric went to the school to kill and didn't care if he died, while Dylan wanted to die and didn't care if others died as well. In April of 1998, a year prior to the shooting, as part of his diversion program, Eric wrote a letter of apology to the owner of the van that he and Dylan broke into earlier that year. Around the same time, he derided the owner of the van in his journal, stating that he believed he had the right to steal something if he wanted to. By far, the most prevalent theme in Dylan's journals is for his wish for suicide and private despair at his lack of success with women which he refers to as infinite sadness Dylan had repeatedly documented his desire to kill himself and his final remark in the basement tapes shortly before the attack is a resigned statement made as he glances away from the camera quote, just know I'm going to a better place I didn't like life too much the FBI's theory was used by Dave Cullen for his 2009 book Columbine. Eric was depicted as the mastermind, having a messianic-level superiority complex and hoping to demonstrate his superiority to the world. Dylan was a follower who primarily participated in in the massacre as a means to simply end his life. Every school shooting is a tragedy, but thankfully these two were not better at making bombs, because this one could have been a lot worse than it ended up being. But that is going to do it for today. Thank you everyone for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed the story. If you did, could you please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and give us a thumbs up on YouTube. A five-star rating really helps others to find the show. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. And once again, thank you everyone for listening. And make sure to keep those doors and windows locked. And stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.